Welcome to Stigma Shakers Podcast. I am your host, Ali Hensley, author, speaker, and stigma shaker of the best kind. This podcast is all about shaking and breaking up taboo into digestible chunks, which we like to call our social smoothie. In this podcast, I will ask the difficult questions that can be hard to digest because everyone deserves a little balance in their mental health diet. And let's face it, folks, the only thing normal in this world is different. So my question to you, can we make truth the next biggest trend? Sarah Graham is an award-winning freelance health journalist and founder of the Hysterical Women blog, specializing in health, gender, and feminism. She has written extensively on these subjects for the i newspaper, Refinery 21, The Telegraph, Grazia, Guardian, The BMJ, and many others. She was a finalist in the 2021 Medical Journalists Association Awards. So this is the season finale of Stigma Shakers podcast, and I am super excited about this one. As women speak out about their experiences of gaslighting and misdiagnosis, my guest today, health journalist Sarah Graham, and author of Rebel Bodies, a guide to the gender health gap revolution, intelligently offers an empowering manifesto for change in women's healthcare. This is the book that I believe deserves to be on every classroom shelf so thank you so much Sarah for joining us today I've been looking forward to this ever since we first zoomed a couple of months ago how are you yeah very well thank you thank you for having me it's such a it's such a topic close to my heart obviously as a women's health advocate specifically in my sphere of MRKH diagnosis which I've, I've talked about and peppered throughout um, the episodes of this podcast but I think understanding and having read your book twice, it's such that it's such a conversation that really needs to be had. But the way that you wrote your book and have written your book is so intelligent in terms of empathy, relatability, and the sheer length of research you've done. Like your statistics are insane. Like it's the facts are quite terrifying. Yeah. What was your so your motivation of becoming a health journalist and, of course, then the author of this incredible book? Um, so I always wanted to be a journalist um, since I was about 13, probably. I loved writing. Um, so that was what I did. I did my degree and then I did a master's in newspaper journalism. And I was interested in women's issues in, in the kind of broadest possible sense, really. I was interested in feminism and all the sort of things that were going on in sort of the early 2010s uh, around the feminist movement. And so when I graduated, I got a job on an online feminist magazine. Um, and that really was kind of where the whole journey started, really, because I was, you know, I was writing about all of these issues. Um, but the ones that I found myself sort of most drawn to were things around mental health, reproductive health, uh, reproductive rights. So I, was, I was doing a lot about kind of abortion rights and, and that sort of thing. Um, and when I went freelance um, about a year later, those were sort of the areas that I decided to, to really focus in on. Um, 
and yeah so over kind of the following few years I was writing more and more about these issues and actually it was an article that I wrote for Stylist in 2018 about endometriosis that really kind of kick-started this whole exploration of the gender health gap because I interviewed a woman who had endometriosis and she'd had symptoms since she was 13 years old when her period started Um, but it had taken her 10 years to get a diagnosis and as a result of the delay in that diagnosis she had permanent damage to her bladder and her bowel which meant that she was now then now living with sort of long-term lifelong bladder and bowel complications Um, and I was really struck by some of the things that she said that um her mother had had endometriosis and she and her mother had had a really difficult time. They were back and forth to the doctors. She's actually in the book. Um, and I spoke to her mother about this experience of being told that she was just copying her mother or her mother had put this idea in her head and that actually there was nothing wrong with her and all girls have difficult periods. And, you know, I that that story in particular really um kind of got me interested in these issues and then I started noticing more and more that you know all of the women that I was interviewing were saying similar kinds of things about feeling dismissed that they weren't listened to they weren't really heard by their doctors they were not taken seriously um and so it was that frustration really that that got me digging into it more that inspired me to start my blog hysterical women which ultimately ultimately was what the uh the book came out of it it sort of evolved into into that so in terms of gender health and i remember when we first had a phone call on zoom um we were talking about women's health and you said but it's not just about what happens below the belt and that can also be like a bit of a misconception so can you explain as I guess succinctly as possible given the time that we have about what what is gender health and what are the issues around the gendered health gap that you've really found fascinating to explore yeah absolutely and I think you know like you say often it is issues like endometriosis that people think of that was the issue that kind of first got me looking at at some of the challenges in women's health but what I've been really struck by is actually it comes into every single aspect of healthcare. So when you look at things like the fact that, you know, research shows women are kept waiting longer in A&E than men, women are more likely to be misdiagnosed while they're having a heart attack, and as a result are more likely to die from a heart attack than men. You know, it comes into things like mental health when you talk about all these kind of stereotypes and attitudes that women with mental health issues are drama queens or they're just attention seeking, they're being manipulative. You know, these tropes come up in so many different areas of health. Um, and that is something that I really wanted to highlight through the book that, you know, it's not just about the, the gyny stuff, the wombs and, and vaginas, although, you know, that is a very big part of it. Mm. Um, but actually this comes, it's a much bigger problem. When I read about the book, as you just said, in terms of women and the disparity of, say, heart attacks with men, and then, of course, the tragedy of that, are there, in terms of for our listeners to really relate to, specific, I guess, diagnosis or a, or a particular health matter that are really different between male and female healthcare? You just listed heart attacks for one of them. What others do you think are being so obviously missed in that way? 
Um, I mean, I think heart attacks are the most obvious in terms of, you know, something that you think of as being fairly gender neutral, but where actually, you know, they're, they're not necessarily treated in, in equal senses. There are quite a few, though, where, you know, you look at things like asthma, for example, or epilepsy, where actually we know that a lot of women, they, they have their symptoms triggered by their periods, for example, and there is so much less known about these issues. Um, I think another one that I was I was really struck by in the book was um, issues around kind of, you know, gastro pain. So there was one woman who went into A&E and she had pancreatitis. Um, and, you know, she spoke about the fact that she was a woman in a large body and all the doctors seemed to be able to see was the fact that she was fat. So she was repeatedly sent away and told you just need to lose weight um, and that will solve all of your problems. And actually the more weight she lost, the more pain she was in. No, I really I really remember that because as you say, there's almost a reluctance and I and people are I find incredibly polite with their health. And I think a lot of people don't want to come across as being a nuisance or a burden or a hypochondriac and I when you talked about in the book about for instance one of those was the the stigma against weight when it comes to health and a fact that I did pull out was 68% of women delayed healthcare due to the fear that their BMI would be used falsely against treatment and that's just one example where people are unlikely to want to go to the doctors even let alone what happens potentially when they get into the treatment room. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are so many examples like that where, you know, past experiences of stigma or of being misdiagnosed or of being disbelieved really has a huge impact on the trust that patients have with their doctors. And that is so potentially harmful because it it, it does mean, you know, that relationship breaks down and patients delay going back to their doctors, which means that things could then be missed. Things could be diagnosed late. Um, and, you know, and with, with the example of something like cancer, that, that can be, have a really serious consequence. You know, we know that early diagnosis saves lives and, and things being caught late, you know, worsens the prognosis that people have. You know, there's a huge issue with with trust being lost, and we see that particularly with black and other ethnic minority groups, with fat patients, with LGBTQ patients, for example, where, you know, they put off going to see the doctor because they fear that they won't be taken seriously. They fear that they'll be stigmatised or, or, or misjudged in some way. And that has huge long-term implications for people's health. Absolutely, completely. And, and when you were talking just about early diagnosis when it comes to cancer, your chapter, which was brilliant about the war against cancer, I often think about in terms of the educational aspect, for us as people also to be able to advocate, we need to have knowledge. And one of the statistics, and I love a good stat, was that 44% of women couldn't identify the vagina and 60% didn't know the vulva so how can we even for instance in this particular area of the body or type of cancer how can we spot it prevent it or in intervene if we don't know our anatomy so where does where does that lie where does the knowledge around our bodies kind of lie at what point in our lives should we be tuning up to that whose responsibility is that 
think, you know, I think it is everyone's responsibility. I think we as a society need to get better at talking about vaginas and vulvas and wombs and all of these, you know, things that are still, yeah, still, still really taboo, but actually they are essential. Um, you know, and, and as you know, I have a toddler. One of the conversations that my husband and I had when we were pregnant was around, you know, and I think it is particularly important for girls. I have a boy, but actually using the correct anatomical language like vulva, vagina, penis, so that actually they know what those parts of their body are. If something goes wrong, they can accurately describe, you know, where the pain is, where the itch is, you know, what, whatever it is. Um, so I think, you know, parents have some responsibility, like right from from day one, really, when you're changing nappies. I think schools also have a really big responsibility. I think, you know, certainly my memories of sex education were pretty poor. Like, I don't, I don't remember learning about my anatomy. I don't remember really learning about anything other than sort of the mechanics of how to get pregnant, how not to get pregnant. I remember a banana in terms of putting on a condom. And it's so interesting. I remember, I feel like I only was in class one day when we covered reproductive health which royally screwed me up because having been born without a uterus and an underdeveloped vaginal canal then when I found these things up like not after school literally 3 p.m after school but when I finished uh high school education or secondary education I should say that completely threw me in terms of being outcast wrong what type of woman am I what type of woman am I if motherhood isn't part of my plan? And I think that's even like the more, the larger scope, the real lateral look at education as well. And I think the word gap is so prevalent across all the topics that you cover in the book. And I particularly loved reading about the gender pain gap. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I mean, the the gender pain gap is is really kind of the the heart of it for me, um, because it comes into so many different aspects of health. But you know, there is research going back twenty or thirty years looking at the fact that you know women's pain is is taken less seriously, is treated less seriously than men's pain. So. Um, you know, women who present in pain are less likely than men, for example, to be given painkillers. They're more likely to be given anti-anxiety medication. So there is this real, very deep-rooted problem of women's pain not being taken seriously or of it being normalised, which I suppose, you know, in some ways is kind of the opposite, but there's this kind of attitude that, you know, as a woman, you're supposed to be in pain. It's normal to be in pain. Um... But actually, it's not really that bad. You just have to suck it up. You just have to get on with it. Um, whereas I think, you know, if a man says, I'm in a lot of pain, um, that is taken much more seriously. They're much more likely to be prescribed heavy duty painkillers um, than a woman. Do you think this comes into the effect of, you sort of open the book by talking about the hysteria and its links to Greek mythology and how Sigmund Freud deciphered it. And I found that really eye-opening. And yet I still feel like that is still really those outdated, I guess, assumptions or theories. I feel that there's still an undertone of that 
even throughout, you know, 2023, as you say, about mental health and, you know, what even motherhood, like going through pregnancy, is that having to cop pregnancy in terms of the difficult issues around pregnancy? It's almost like, well, that's a byproduct because you're growing a child. So deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is something that you see kind of throughout our reproductive lives, in a sense, this idea that, you know, you are assigned female at birth, or you're somebody who's born with a womb, and this is just an inevitable part of life that you have to just put up with. You know, so you see it with period pains or heavy periods, you see it with pregnancy complications, things like hyperemesis gravidarum, which is really severe morning sickness, is dismissed as, oh, it's a sign that you have a healthy pregnancy, and just eat some ginger biscuits but actually it's really debilitating and actually quite dangerous you know both for the mother and the baby um you see it again with postnatal issues like one of the women I interviewed spoke about having really severe postnatal incontinence like wetting herself in mother care really awful experiences and that just being sort of written off as the price you pay for having a baby um you know and, and I think the same all the way through to menopause this idea over and over again that this is just what women have to put up with um and your mother put up with it and your grandmother put up with it and so should you right right there was a another um scary stat let's say about well menopause and i think the topic around menopause is just starting to sort of creep out the woodwork a little bit and there is a fact which was 14 million working days per year are lost due to menopause so the stigmas around gendered health is actually having a massive impact and knock on to the economy such as when 8.2 million cost the UK economy just on endometriosis there is an economic downfall with doing this so it's almost becoming incredibly counterproductive by not having these conversations even on a governmental political level would you say yeah absolutely I mean I think that's one of the real frustrations that I feel about you know the lack of research the lack of services for for these kinds of conditions is that you know when you look at the economic impact they're having they are excluding women from their workplaces with something like menopause for example you know you're taking women who are in really senior positions potentially they're at the top of their game they're very experienced they might have 30 years of experience and suddenly they're reducing their hours or they're not going for promotions or they're you know they're having all of these mysterious days off because they can't cope with the symptoms and they can't get the support they need to be able to cope with those symptoms I think it's incredibly short-sighted that we're not doing more in terms of early intervention, educating both patients and doctors about the issues, and also as employers looking at ways of, you know, ensuring that the support is there in workplaces as well. Yes, and I remembered a time as you were talking about that, I wasn't a high flyer, but I was working in a good job in corporate. And at the time I was looking at doing egg retrieval egg freezing if I was going to eventually look at the IVF process and I asked my boss if he could quietly sort of come into my office and close the door because I had something very personal to tell him which of course it was personal but even the conversation was really odd because it was all it was very sort of hush hush 
almost apologetic, almost feeling a little bit guilty and adequate. And then him opening up about his struggles that he was going through with IVF. And then two doors down, someone else was also going through the IVF struggle, and which we know is one in eight people, one in eight couples. So it was really interesting when you said that about the workplace. It's such a big factor for people because, yeah, we spend so much time there. And yet it is obviously impacting, it is impacting on a huge economic level with, with money, which the government will not like. I think a really big profound part of your work, Sarah, and it's so relevant, is health around the LGBTI and those who are transgender and how they really have, they really do have so many obstacles, which I know is so generic in terms of what we know, but you've, you paid focus to that quite heavily in your book. What are the, some of the key issues that, that, transgender people are truly facing and why? It, it was really important for me to include uh, the whole spectrum of, of the trans community in the book really so trans men, trans women and non-binary people because I think in lots of different ways they're facing challenges within the healthcare system that are very similar to the challenges that cis women are facing. At the same time they're also facing lots of very different challenges you know that are you know things that I will never have to go through. Um, so I think one of the things that I was really struck by that I learned about a couple of years ago was this phenomenon called trans broken arm syndrome, which is, you know, a trans person might go to their GP, might go to the hospital with a really normal routine health issue. You know, they might have tonsillitis, they might have a broken arm, they might have an infected cut on their hand. Um, and doctors, because they're trans, seem to have this kind of almost kind of a panic I think that oh god I don't know what to do because this is a trans person I've never treated a trans person before and so they see that you know they experience things like either being told it's because you're trans or it's because of your hormone treatment and I need to refer you back to your gender specialist or they're told oh you know I can't prescribe you this because I don't know how it will interact with your hormone treatment etc you know things that actually when you think about them logically you know, one of the um, trans men that I interviewed was told he couldn't be prescribed antibiotics because he was on testosterone. And he was like, well, a cis guy has, the, you know, the similar levels of testosterone naturally and would just be prescribed antibiotics without a second thought. But there just seems to be this kind of block. And I think a lot of it does come from ignorance and from fear, where doctors are scared of getting it wrong, of, of doing the wrong thing. And, and they just think, oh, it's just easier if I just refer you back to your gender specialist actually you know a gender specialist is not there to treat tonsillitis or a broken arm right that is something that's yeah. that general doctors be able to deal with themselves um so that that is a really big thing and i think the other thing where there's a lot of crossover with you know a lot of the issues that i talk about cis women facing is to do with just a kind of basic bodily autonomy you know being trusted to know who they are, what they want to do with their body, to be able to make those informed choices. I think that is something that comes up time and time again. You know, and I I don't have the space or the expertise within the book to go into, you know, the, the sort of wider issues with transition-related healthcare. But I think even just within the, the more general healthcare sphere, there are huge kind of barriers um, facing trans communities. 
And as you say, there are many podcasts and many more books to follow on this topic alone. But I, yeah, as you said, it was, I went to a conference a few years ago um, in relation to, for me, MRKH. And this, yeah, probably about six or seven years ago. And the same topic as we've just been discussing now was, it was really relevant in context to, to this then. And that was a, a complete fear factor around not wanting to get it wrong and the liability potentially of getting it wrong. And as you say, what that then just puts a whole bunch of shame and fear in the patient themselves. And before you know it, as you say, that that gap just completely gets bigger and broadens. And likewise with the LGBTI, and I feel like I'm just skipping through this. It's not at all. There's just so much I want to cover. There was a really incredible fact and statistic that you put in the book that drew my eye, which was that black women are four more times likely to die at childbirth than white women. And so then we come down to a completely sort of sub-gender issue in that way. What some of the, the findings, I guess, or the, the key things that you were drawing out in that in that way? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, as we've discussed with the LGBTQ community, there are so many different factors besides gender that come into the gender health gap. You know, so anybody living with um, multiple disadvantages, multiple forms of uh, discrimination is going to face those kind of multiple barriers. I think with, you know, things like racial disparities in, in maternal mortality, that, yeah, as you say, there have been some really shocking statistics in the last few years showing the experiences that black women in particular have. You know, some of the women that I spoke to, you know, described very similar things to, to what we've already spoken about, that, you know, feeling that they weren't listened, they weren't believed when they were in pain. I think, though, that one of the really important differences for, for black women is that there were all these racial stereotypes that came into this as well as the stereotypes about women so for example there was a really shocking study in america in 2016 which looked at the fact that medical students and um, postgraduate trainees something like 50 percent of them held at least one false racist belief about black patients and it was things like you know, black people feel less pain, black people have thicker skin. And when you look then at the racial disparities in maternal mortality, the fact that black women are more likely to die, and they're also, you know, they're also more likely to suffer really life-changing injuries in, in childbirth as well. Um, I think those racist beliefs about pain thresholds really do become very very significant when it when it comes to things like childbirth because if you believe that a black woman can withstand more pain than a white woman then you know you can understand why they might be less likely to to give less pain relief or to withhold that pain relief and actually that is just not true that reminds me when you were saying that um in my early days of advocacy in australia when i was really sort of trying to understand diversity and difference not just within you know Australia but looking at the the broader perspective or people within Australia with varying cultural beliefs and there's been a few thrown around about MRKH one of which was a doctor a male doctor and I respect what he was saying but I found it incredibly confronting that a banana leaf treatment 
applied correctly can grow a person's uterus. And I do respect that is a belief system, but I also think it was incredibly terrifying because this was the information that was going out with not very much evidence, if in fact no evidence. I know that some people within the world have been told that if they stand in direct sunlight, their MRKH diagnosis will also be eradicated. And so I'm always really conscious and mindful of cultural beliefs also, but how to, I don't have an answer, (laughs) but how to sort of open up that conversation when it comes to even looking at other pockets of the world that are going to have a disparity between what we know and what they know and how we can, so many bridges to gap, Sarah, so many bridges to gap. To flip it slightly on its head, a little bit with stigma shakers, of course, we just talked about the racial disparity amongst women, but across your research and time as a journalist and writer, is there a difference in care, say, between black men and white men? Or do you think this is female specific? Yeah, I mean, I think it is It is such a complex issue that I, you know, I, I don't think, um, I certainly think that racism across medicine is is a problem um and i don't i don't think at all that it's exclusive to women um you know i think in lots of ways you know the, there are probably examples of times where a black man might have be- have worse treatment for example than a white woman and I, I you know it's a it's a really complex picture i don't think we can kind of talk about sexism without also talking about race or um or you know other um forms of discrimination so yeah i i absolutely think you know it's not saying that all men have a really easy time of healthcare because they absolutely don't you know black men for example are massively overdiagnosed with schizophrenia and some of these really um stigmatizing mental health diagnoses and so I think, you know, absolutely, it's not been a particular focus of my work, because just purely because my work has focused on women. Um, but yeah, it's absolutely not to say that black men or disabled men or um, trans men or gay men have an easy time of it because because they absolutely don't. And mm, um, well, you know, there is that, I don't know whether it's stereotypical of me to say, but we do know that you know, for men who are obviously listening as well, they can be notorious when it comes to not necessarily sharing their health concerns. Not everybody is leading from the front when it comes to advocating for their bodies and their health. And as you say, there's a fear around opening up around mental health. And this is just the tip of a huge iceberg, but I'm really grateful for you <laughs> answering that because I I think it was just really, it is such a, it is such a it's tangled interwoven um issue that we continue to face one of the when i read the book and being a health advocate for my my charity and my work is i have made it a really important objective of mine to work with healthcare professionals across multiple countries who are best practice at what they do how has the sort of how how has healthcare providers or you know the medical institutions reacted to your book because there is I don't want to say there's negativity because there's an incredible amount of positivity but is there 
Do they feel blamed or targeted at all? Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, certainly, it probably, you know, slightly comes down to a question of which of them have read my book and probably the ones who have read the book are the ones who are a bit more open and a bit more receptive to begin with. Um, but no, generally speaking, I don't think there has been um, that kind of negativity. I think one of the things I was very careful to do was to try and make it a very nuanced conversation that didn't pit healthcare professionals and patients against each other. You know, so I wanted to present experiences on both sides of those of that fence to be able to show, you know, these are some of the challenges that doctors are facing within the NHS, within the medical system, within the medical knowledge that we currently have. Um, so no, I think certainly from from the conversations I've had with healthcare providers so far, they have appreciated that level of nuance. They've appreciated me presenting their side of the story, um, so to speak, you know, and making it clear that there are challenges. Um, you know, to do with the lack of research, to do with the lack of training and education that they have. And there are some really fantastic healthcare providers, many of whom I interviewed for the book, who are out there trying to improve things, who are, you know, paying for extra specialist training out of their own money, doing it in their own time, um, you know, who are engaging with patients on social media, for example, who are really trying to sort of push the you know sort of equality and diversity agenda whether that's through racial equality task forces or um you know working on the women's health strategy I, you know so i think there is there is a lot of engagement within the medical community there's also you know inevitably corners of that where people are, are perhaps a bit more reluctant and dragging their feet but i think on the whole people understand the issues and are wanting to to do something about it and it's incremental I mean change after all and what you said about the healthcare providers that you've spoken to and wrote about are clearly also wanting to see some change as well and I I remember speaking to various activists along my time working within the charity women's health sort of sector if you like and I think there's a way to proactively get those conversations started and I, I think once you're in the door or once you're in the inbox and you fight the right person find the right person to sort of partner up I think then you've got a chance at change like the amount of times I had to email hospitals across Australia and 90% because of their workload and I was just you know this fluffy blonde you know I'm being a bit sort of derogatory about myself but just who is this girl talking about wanting to do MRKH peer support because are we going to sit around and braid each other's hair and wipe away each other's tears? And I was trying to emphasize that peer support is actually part or hopefully part of a treatment plan and be a necessity and not just be seen as this, oh, that'll be nice. We'll just let them go and do that. But it was getting to the right people to really filter down. So if you can get your foot in the door and find the right people, and as you say, bridge the gap has always been something I've always talked about when it comes to raising awareness and making change. Absolutely. And that was something else that I really wanted to do 
with rebel bodies was you know to show people that there are lots of different ways to do advocacy there are lots of different ways to be an activist and they don't all necessarily have to involve you know going on marches or having meetings with mps you know there are lots of ways that people can get involved and there are lots of existing campaigns lots of existing support groups that people can link in with and and work together with you know it doesn't have to be you sitting at home on your own feeling helpless because I'm just one person and what can I do to change all of this? You know, there are lots of different ways to get involved. And I think when you said in the book about death means we believe you now, and I often think about how many people go to the doctors and they come home and they know something is wrong. I mean, obviously death is a terrifying, extreme example of of that, but what do people what can people do if they know something's wrong and they truly are not necessarily feeling like they're being heard because it's quite scary to stand up to an expert yeah absolutely and you know i acknowledge in the book that that is a really scary thing to do at a time when you're feeling especially vulnerable because you're not well um i think it's not always going to be possible to do that in the moment i think if you can take somebody with you who, you know, either makes you feel more confident so that you feel more able to speak up. But, you know, equally, it might be that you take your mum or your partner or your best friend and actually they can speak up on your behalf and say, no, I don't think you're listening. I don't think you're taking my friend seriously. Um, that can be really powerful. I think having research or, you know, going along armed with some knowledge or you know, a symptom diary, for example, something that gives your doctor something to work with can be really helpful. Um, equally, you know, I think if somebody just really isn't listening and you're not getting anywhere, knowing that it's okay to ask for a second opinion, you, you know, you're allowed to do that, you're allowed to make a complaint. And I think sometimes that can be helpful because, you know, otherwise doctors don't necessarily get that feedback. Um, so there are lots of there are lots and lots of tips that I include throughout the book um, about things that you can try, um, ways that you can advocate for yourself better. And as I say, they're not all guaranteed to work. It will depend on you and your doctor and lots of other other factors. But um, there are there are things you can do, and there are mechanisms in place for you to make complaints if you need to. You've inspired me, Sarah. You've inspired me. When I was about six months ago, I always get letters sent about having a cervical smear. And technically, without a cervix, there's nothing to, you know, there's nothing to scrape. There's no, there's no smear test. And I did go and I was really sort of gearing myself up for for going because I haven't had like anything investigatory there for 22 years. But when I said about MRKH and I had some research with me that says that whilst you don't necessarily need to have the standard smear tests um, advised by the NHS, you are encouraged to have a further test every three years around the vaginal vault and any cancerous cells. And they did say, we'll go and ask somebody and they, they didn't get back to me. And then next time came around and they said, we'll ask someone and they said, you're not applicable and that felt I found that I thought I could make a really big fuss out of this if I wanted to but I just thought oh well if they said that I'm not applicable 
my health isn't applicable. And now I will probably go and have a further conversation about it because even me, <laughs> who does this for a living, I, I felt very kind of, I felt very sort of null and void in that moment. And yeah, I, yeah, I think it's worth I, You know, it's one of those things where it's really easy for me to sit here and say it. I, I find it really hard when it's me and my health and it's the professional sat in front of me. You know, I, I totally acknowledge that it's not easy. It's not easy at all. And sometimes, you know, particularly in the moment where you're on the spot and you just feel really like, oh, okay, fine. I don't, I'm not going to make a fuss. It's so so much easier to just walk away and go, you know what, it's not worth it. And we do have to choose our battles to some extent. Um, but equally, you know, I think if it's something that you're concerned about and it's something that you feel like, actually, I would like to have this checked out, I would like the reassurance that everything's fine, then, you know, it, it is worth pushing. We could talk for ages. We really could talk for ages, Sarah. But I did want to just sort of conclusively wrap this up because I think that's just a really lovely message for people to sort of end on about picking your battles but also standing up for your health here at the stigma shakers podcast our aim is to shake up and blend unique smoothies for our listeners to digest around the topics of stigma and taboo now that we've come to the end of our incredible discussion what social ingredients would you like to have in your social smoothie to improve people's outlook, mental health, and judgments. Ooh, that's a tricky one. What ingredients? I, I suppose the kind of the the three things that I always come back to in the book are research, education, and um, the sort of cultural conversation. Really, so we need we need better research. We need to understand what is going on with our own bodies, with other people's bodies, with our patients' bodies. Um, you know, we need research that takes into account differences, you know, and, and not just the obvious differences like race or disability or sexuality, but, you know, even differences between cis women. Um, so that, I think, is a really important one. Education and training, obviously, we've, we've spoken about this loads, but public education awareness about our bodies and our anatomy, but also the education and awareness for doctors, you know, for them to, for that research that I spoke about to then filter down and uh, for doctors to, to understand more about women's bodies and how they work and differences between men and women and conditions that mostly affect women. And I think, you know, the really important kind of final thing is just, as, as you say, shaking up some of the stigmas, some of the stereotypes, some of the attitudes, some of the sexism and, and racism and uh, transphobia that, that still exists in society. Um, and really kind of turning those on their heads and looking at the way that we think about health, the way that we talk about these issues, the way that doctors make clinical judgments um, and really getting them to sort of reflect on those. That sounds incredibly nutritious and really chunky and yummy. <laughs> what would, does your smoothie have a name? What, would, what could we call it? Ooh. Let's call it the rebel. I was just looking at the cover of the book. I was like, it has to have rebel in it. It is called the rebel. 
very good for your diet rebel smoothie. oh the rebel smoothie <laughs> i have that every day um That's if there funny. could be a headline on today's news about the work that you do to get out there and broadcast to everybody what would that headline be oh god um what would it be i mean i think one of the things that i say a lot because i remember when the book first came out somebody um was talking about the book and they described the gender health gap revolution as your revolution as in that it, that it was like my revolution and i remember being like no this is this is like i'm just here documenting it i'm a journalist this is not my revolution so i think the headline for me would be something like you know the gender revolution the gender health gap revolution is out there it's happening it's already started um and you know anyone can get involved and you should get involved yeah it's the gender health gap revolution is your revolution for sure yeah for sure how can people find you sarah um so i'm on instagram at sarah graham seven writer and uh, I'm also on Twitter or X at SarahGram7. Whether that will still even exist by the time this podcast goes out, who knows? <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining me today. I'm so grateful. I know you're on a massive PR push. And so you've got, your time is precious. But this is something that is so close to my heart and the heart of many, many people. And this is definitely a stigma shaking conversation that needs to start so thank you so much you thank you for having me it's been really lovely to chat